This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and after a more than year absence talking about the Best Picture Oscar winners, uh, I am finally back, and I've also changed the name. Uh, it used to be called From Wings to Birdman because when the show first started, that's what was the current Best Picture winner, but I am finally going to update it to From Wings to Moonlight. So uh, that's that. Um, although I guess I'll probably be changing it again in the next few months when the next Best Picture winner comes out. But yeah, we'll just call that the thing uh, to do. Uh, but I am back. I'm very excited to be back. Um this is now uh, going through the decade 1978 to 1987. And for those of you who are not familiar with how this works, is uh, we watch all 10 Best Picture movies from that decade, and then we rank them. That's all it is. We talk about what worked, what didn't work, what we like, things like that. Uh, I used to do this with my old co-host, Andreas Babiolakis, but since he's no longer with the show, uh, I have found a very suitable uh, fill-in, and that would be Stephanie Pryor, who is back after doing the Make Remakes with me. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dakota. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Uh, so this is your first time watching all 10 Best Picture winners. You had previously watched yes. several with me, but mm-hmm. not all. How was the experience for you? <laughs> well, it was kind of nice being able to pick and choose which ones I watched, because trying to find time to sit down and watch 10 movies... Um, it's hard. And especially some of extreme length. It's very hard. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a challenge for sure, but I'm actually proud to say that I watched a full set of 10 this time. <laughs> it's like an accomplishment for me. It, it is a bit of an accomplishment. At this point, I'm only doing this so I can say I've seen them all. <laughs> yeah. uh, because otherwise, sometimes I don't care that much, but I'm just so determined to knock them all off the list. Uh, and actually have an opinion of whether or not some of these films were worthy of Best Picture winners or not. Right. Um, you know, you hear about some of the old ones, and you're like, oh, how'd that win? But then when you watch, you're like, oh, this is actually a good movie. Like, how did it beat Citizen Kane? Well, you know, Gentleman's Agreement was a good movie. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. How Green Was My Valley beat Citizen Kane. Oh, that one I'm not too sure about then. That was a terrible movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So we're, like I said, this is going from 1978 to 1987. The way this works is we watched all 10 movies and we gave them ratings and rankings. And then through a very scientific method that I made up was put into effect, we have our rankings. So this is going to be part one of a two part episode where we're going to go through numbers 10 through six. And then in the second part, we're going to go through five through one. Uh, and also give out our awards that we deem fit for these movies. Uh, before we get started, though, I'm going to bring back the returning segment that I always do with these Best Picture podcasts and uh, have someone come and talk about their three favorite movies of all time. Uh, so you know what? Let's check this out right now. It's not the time for us. No, this is not the time. Hold on. 
So now part of our reoccurring segment where I invite a Live and Limbo contributor onto the podcast to talk about some of their favorite movies of all time. Today I am joined by Cole Luthal, who is going to talk about his three favorite movies. How are you doing today, Cole? I'm doing well, and how about you? I am great to finally have you on. You know, we've been chatting for a while about bringing you on to here because you are such a knowledgeable film guy. Uh, so it's good that we get a little taste of you, and then uh, maybe next time we'll move on to the entree where you're on for a full episode. Yeah, that'd be great. That's awesome. <laughs> good, good. Um, so I posed the question to you, what are your three favorite movies? And I told yep. you that definition can mean whatever you want it to mean so without further ado what what was the criteria when i say that to you what was the criteria that instantly jumped into your mind um well i guess the criteria that i would have based those three movies off of is um the time when i watched them and how i was feeling at the time um so uh basically that and the i also base it off of replayability um these top three movies that i picked i could watch them i swear to god a million times and i i love them all the same every single time um another thing too is i mean deep down it is really just what it the the films mean to me right so Mm -hmm. so yeah that's good to know uh is there any sort of order to these or were they just three that instantly came to you um, well, the first two instantly came to me, and then the third one I, I had to think about a little bit, because um, it is kind of tough to make a, a list of your favorite films, because there's so many that I've seen. Um, but yeah, the, the, Do the Right Thing, which is the third pick for me, um, I, I guess that one I, I kind of had to think about. Um, but the first two came to me pretty well instantly, yeah. Okay, well then let, let's start with, with Do the Right Thing. I think what's yep. interesting is before we get to the other two is this is the most recent movie on your list, and this movie came out in 1989. What, 89, yeah. Yeah, so what does that when – I, when I see the list that you sent me, and we're going to get to the other ones after, but you know, all three of these are considered classics. They're, they're not modern. I guess you know, Do the Right Thing is a modern film in that sense. But mm-hmm. you know, we're talking now. It, that movie is uh, almost thirty years old now. That is, that is firmly yeah. in the, the the classical movie category at this point. Um, what about older movies like this uh, really draw your attention? Well, I think the main thing with Do the Right Thing is that um, the the content of the the film itself, like the meaning behind it, and the whole the whole movie deals with uh, race related themes in in the U.S. I I still think that that movie is completely um, it, it 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 still works with today's um, with with a lot of the issues that are going on within the states and and throughout the whole world. I mean, mostly North America, but. Um, yeah, but at the time um, when they made the movie, there were a lot of race-related issues happening in the States, and I still think that that works uh, for today. So it's kind of, in a way, uh, it's still it, it can still speak to people um, in today's climate. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think it's a very important film to watch mm-hmm. um, to get a grasp of of what it was like in the late eighties um, and compare it to today. It's it's yeah. a pretty great film, especially since like the first half to three quarters of the movie, everything is really bubbling and simmering, and you've got like a, a ride a wide variety of different emotions and themes going on. But then when like everything comes to a head in the final act, that's kind of just like, you know, someone lit a match on a giant pile of gasoline. Um, it explodes. And it, it absolutely explodes. And it, it's crazy how much impact this movie still has today. It, it is incredible. Yeah. Um, when the movie came out just within the first opening day, uh, from what I hear, it had a lot of controversy because Again, it's touching upon issues that were so touchy at the time. And race-related issues are always going to be touchy, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, this movie hit a lot of people's funny bone. Uh, not, in a, not in a good way at all. Um, but a lot of people thought it was it was brilliant, and and I'm I'm one of those people who think it thinks I, it is. I think that's sort of the power of you know Spike Lee's movies is there is humor in this movie. You can laugh at a lot of the things that are happening. You can even laugh at some of you know the racism that's going on, allowing you to sort of reconsider your own perceptions of the world. Um, yeah. And it, you know, I'd almost compare it something to to Get Out, where that movie is really funny, but the harder you're laughing is the more in intense the racism is in the movie yeah it gets dark mm-hmm. essentially yeah get dark uh, get out is but yeah the harder you laugh the darker it gets right so yeah um so what is your number two movie then uh number two i had to pick um no i i watched this movie at a time when um i i loved american history i still do and i think this is uh one of the most important um wars that would have happened i i I, uh but apocalypse now apocalypse now um i love the history behind the vietnam war and and um and this movie really showcases the brutality of of what happened in the jungles it was it's a it's a really great movie Mm -hmm. this movie is is almost as famous for what you see on the movie as what happened behind the scenes with Francis Ford Coppola literally going insane while making this and having to deal with the equally insane Marlon Brando. Yeah. Um, And uh, Martin Sheen also had his fair share of moments. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, the opening scene is uh, Martin Sheen's character uh, Willard. He's in his hotel room in Saigon and he's going insane. He's drinking. He's, you know, he's he's literally going insane. And in the actual making of the scene, he decides because he's going into a fit of rage and he's actually hammered. He's he's Martin Sheen is actually really drunk. Um, he punches uh, um, a mirror and breaks his hand in real life. And he um, everyone was telling him to stop. You know, we should call an ambulance. And he's like, no. No, 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 let's keep filming the scene. So he starts smearing blood all over himself and he starts screaming. It's, it's really intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when you know what happened behind the scenes that he was actually, he was actually facing his, his demons in real life while acting is, is really, it's really intense. Now, as a, as a film student like you are, uh, I would say of your three movies, this is probably the most cinematic of them as far as the most 
going on. Uh, yeah. What was it when you first watched it that really stuck, stood out to you that Francis Ford Coppola was like making a masterpiece? Um, well, <laughs> honestly, the sound design of the film is brilliant. Um, the way that I, I'll go, I'll touch upon uh, for the sound design uh, on the, in the first scene when Martin, uh, uh, Martin Sheen is staring up at his ceiling fan and you kind of, the, he kind of fades in between Martin Sheen's face looking up at the ceiling and the fan. Um, you can hear helicopter blades instead of fan blades. And that's because um, Martin Sheen is still, you know, he's still stuck in the jungle. You know, he's still stuck in this, this moment of war. Even if he is having time off, he's still facing his deepest fears and wanting to go back. Um, so the sound design was a big part of it. Um, visually speaking, it's, and, and in terms of special effects that they used in the film, it's, it's, um, it's really great. I think the biggest, the two biggest things that stuck out for me was the sound design of the film and the, the special effects that they used. Mm -hmm. uh, even the cinematography is great too. So. Yeah. I, I think this is definitely one of the most impressive movies all time. And, you know, I, I'm, went to acting school so looking at all the performances that they had in this especially in like small capacities the impact that all of these actors made on it from like robert duvall and lawrence fishburne and harrison ford and dennis hopper it's kind of crazy the amount of great small performances this movie has yeah there were a lot of cameos that that is uh, another thing that was really cool and it's not even that they feel like they're small uh roles they actually feel like they f like it doesn't feel like i'm watching an actor uh, any of these roles it, it actually feels like they belong in the world of apocalypse now which was really it was really cool yeah uh and then what is your uh, your third movie um so 12 angry men um which i would consider my favorite film of all time um it's ever since i've seen it um I've always thought that it was the best movie I I could ever I I don't know I I just love the movie so much, um, but yeah my 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 number one pick would be uh, Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, I you know it's funny that I would consider one of my all time favorite movies too. I've managed to narrow my list down to five, and this is on my list of of five. Yeah, so I I really appreciate when someone else likes it. I think this is sort of the perfect go to movie for someone who says that they don't like old or black and white movies. Exactly, and and this is really a drawing movie for that. I mean, between the acting performances, the the camera work that Sidney Lumet, um, that that is his, uh, yeah, Sidney Lumet, um, the way that he used the cinematography in the film throughout the uh, entirety of the the movie is brilliant. Um, it's really just such an engaging and suspenseful movie. Mm -hmm. It's it's a sort of movie where everything about it what he does is super basic but he does it so well that it's just so easily noticeable and appreciate it the the story is a very simple story the camera work is very simple the you know the set design production design is one room literally the whole movie takes place in one room except for the very yeah. end and, and the, like, in the beginning in the courtroom correct and that's yeah. it yeah the courtroom and then the steps outside of it but like everything about this movie is as basic as you can get it and when you're dealing with the bare bones like that you need to make everything perfect in order to make it work yeah, and he makes every moment of that movie count. My God, does he ever. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, you you said um the the camera work is simple, and yeah, it's very simple. The way that he shot, like not how he shot it was simple, but um when you look at it, it looks very simple, but. Um, for the, so say you split the movie up into three parts. You got the first part, the second part, and the third part. Within the second part, he started using longer lenses to start to make look, um, make it look like the walls are closing in and it starts giving off this claustrophobic feeling by the time of the end. Um, he's shooting it below eye level so that the, the walls look like they're coming in on all the characters. The ceiling looks like it's, it's slowly moving towards it and, it's it's just brilliant that he made it seem like such a claustrophobic film. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think Lamette is probably one of the most underrated greatest directors of all time. Like if you were to name, you know, greatest directors of all time, you'd obviously say, you know, Coppola and, and people mm-hmm. like that, Scorsese. But I think Lamette is probably a name that often is forgotten, but should be up there on the basically the Mount Rushmore of directors. It really is. Oh yeah, and uh, Stanley Kubrick as well. Oh, oh yeah, obviously, yeah. Like you got like the, the obvious ones, like like Kubrick and Coppola and Scorsese and people like that. And I think I think Lamet is the one that really uh, brings a lot to the table that people forget about. And when you look at his filmography, it's like pretty stunning how many amazing movies he has on there. It, it really is. Yeah, Dog Day Afternoon is is also a classic in my opinion. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you watched Twelve Angry Men? Um, I must have been in. Well, I'm 20 now. Um, I think I I was in. I, it was a late night. I remember I was I was at home doing nothing. I think I was in grade 11, which would have been maybe four years ago. Maybe f- I could have been five years ago that I saw this. Anyway, I'm sitting at home. And um, I heard about this movie and I was kind of getting into crime films and I heard this is this was a great film to watch. So I, I checked it out and I, I loved every moment of it. Um, so it's really one of those movies. Then? Yeah, I watched this by myself. OK, yeah, that's that's good to know. Yeah, I watched this pretty early on, probably around a similar age to you. And it's kind of always stuck with me as as one that I appreciated a lot. Yeah, it, it's. Um, it's just one of those movies that just it, it grabs you by the throat and it it just it holds on until the end of the movie. It's uh it, it same with um do the right thing. It's it's one of those films that also deals with a little bit of, of race issues because they're 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 sitting in the courtroom deciding the life of this Hispanic boy and some of the characters have these the, the prejudices against young kids or you know different races and um. It's also funny that this movie also deals with the hottest day of the summer. That's what that was another funny thing that I found. That's interesting. Uh, I obviously right away as soon as you mentioned the two, the the race relations aspect of it sort of stuck out. But that would make a very interesting uh, late July, early August double feature. Yeah, it would. <laughs> Obviously, you know, we're in the middle of winter right now, so Mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to watch them together. But I think that might be an interesting experiment to pair them uh, in the summer and and see what people think about, especially, you know, a theater without air conditioning. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that would be brutal. (laughs) You would feel feel even more hot watching those movies. Probably, probably. Um, all right, uh, that's interesting. I really appreciate it hearing about those three favorite movies of yours. Um, what was the last movie you actually saw in theater? Speaking of which, 
Uh, the last one this year? Mm-hmm. I, I I just saw last week in The Disaster Artist. Oh, yeah? What did you think of it? It was good. It was really good. I, Me and my buddies, we... Um, we did a little screening in, in my buddy's basement um, watching The Room. I've seen it before. I think it's a hilarious movie. It's awful, but it's <laughs> it's it's so funny. Um, so we decided that day that we would go down to Toronto and we would we would go see The Disaster Artist because it was only playing in one theater and it was really good. They um, it was they're they're sweeting the scenes like when they reenacted a lot of the scenes. It was very accurate and. Um, James Franco's acting was incredible. That's interesting. It, uh, it was really, um, it was really close to Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you think they did a good homage to it? I think they did a great homage to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, they um, another good thing about it is they they didn't make Tommy look like the villain of the film, even though that some people would be like, "Oh yeah, he's a villain." Yeah. Well, he made the room. It was entirely his project. But um, they have compassion for him in the film, which is it's it's a cool side to see. Nice, that's uh, that's good to hear. That's definitely one I uh, I'm looking forward to checking out myself. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good. Good. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me, Cole. Like I said earlier, we've been chatting behind the scenes for a while about trying to get you on an episode. So I'm glad I finally got around to doing it. And uh, and hopefully in the new year, we can figure out a time that works for the two of us in a subject matter we're both passionate about. I can have you on again. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to come on. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. give special thanks to Cole for coming on to the show. Uh, I said it twice, I'm going to say it again. I really want to have him on full time. He's a really smart, knowledgeable guy uh, that knows a lot about movies. uh, And I I look forward to having a good chat with him. Uh, So I guess without further ado, uh, we're going to talk about the first movie in this uh, series, which at number 10 is Terms of Endearment. It came out in 1983. It was directed by James L. Brooks. It won five Oscars, and it was nominated for six others. This is a movie that uh, is about a family drama, mostly concerning a mother-daughter relationship uh, and how their various relationships with men and other people in their family sort of uh, impact the way they look at the world. Um, having such a female-led movie did you feel that um you know this movie was appropriate at looking at the ways women see the world or how they view relationships in their world even if it was written and directed by a man yeah actually i think it was pretty good at uh viewing the world through through a female's perspective because each character kind of represented each side of coin, one being kind of more of a rebel, doing what she pleased, kind of finding what made her happy and wanting to follow that versus uh, Shirley MacLaine's character, which was a little bit more prim and proper, more, you know, 
her beliefs came first and what she thought was right and what she thought was morally acceptable. So I thought I'd give you two good female outlooks on life and then how they viewed relationships both with each other and with male counterparts was also interesting and different in the way that they merged together and kind of weaved in and out. And I thought it was a good portrayal of that. Mm -hmm. The movie kind of, you know, the whole purpose of the movie is showing the juxtaposition between the parallels and differences of these two women and how you can sort of extract comedy out of some very serious life moments. Um, You know, I'm not going to say any stories, but you know, there'll be times we'll be having a conversation and you'll realize that something you say or did sort of relates to something another female member of your family did, whether it's your mother, your grandmother, and right. things like that. And I think that's really the basis for a lot of the Deborah Winger character is she realizes that she is her mother, even though she is trying her hardest not, not to be her mother. Yeah. Which I think we all, which, which I think all daughters struggle with at some point, you know, they don't, want to be like their mothers, but then they do something you're like, Oh God, that was so my mom. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, I think, I think this movie, despite the, the script that wasn't all that great and the music was super cheesy. I think this movie is saved by the acting performances. You know, mm-hmm. you have the two really strong female leads with Deborah Winger and Shirley MacLaine. MacLaine is definitely on her, her A-game here. And then Jack Nicholson shows up about halfway through the movie and sort of injects his own weird Jack Nicholson life into the movie. Where, like, I don't even know if he knew that he was on a set. He just sort of <laughs> brought this manic him. energy that he naturally possesses. Yeah. And it really was a shot of life. But, you know, all these actors. And then there's some other uh, small character actors who pop up who all do such a great job despite all the limitations put upon them to the point where the movie's actually an enjoyable watch yeah i would say that i wouldn't say that you know it's a extremely thought-provoking and movie which a lot of critics kind of said that it pulled with your heartstrings but i found that it was almost too chaotic to really ground you in any feelings before it pulled at anything. So, I mean, I liked all the performances, but as a whole, it was kind of lackluster for me. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I think that purposely sort of stuck, stuck out for not working for me was during the more dramatic moments, I didn't really especially feel uh, a connection to the characters. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this big moment where uh, Deborah Winger finds out that she has cancer and, you know, the way that she kind of relays that to her family, the drama just doesn't work. You've spent most of the movie, you know, laughing or sort of eye-rolling, cringing at some of the more dramatic, faux-dramatic moments. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have something of, of real tangible despair going on. And, and me as an audience member, I could care less that she's about to die of cancer. And I think that and her lack of ability to connect during this painful moment uh, really sort of highlights one of the flaws of this movie. Yeah, I kind of have to agree. You just don't feel any kind of emotion for any of the characters, really. No one connects with you as an audience member, and you just kind of feel like you're just along for the ride at that point. And you're like, oh, okay, this is just an, another event in this movie. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I know you were a big fan of Shirley MacLaine's mm-hmm. performance. What about her? What, what about did she bring to the table that, that you really appreciated? I really liked her her coldness towards uh, Deborah Winger's character, but you still felt that it was it what didn't as though it may have seemed malicious. It kind of she played it where you could tell she really did care for her daughter and she was just struggling with how she thought she was supposed to be as a mother, as a woman. And so I thought that was super interesting and she had real quiet moments and she had real loud moments. And I think just balancing both of them is what made her seem so good to me. Mm -hmm. I I agree. I thought she was pretty phenomenal. I think the only time for me that didn't work was there's a scene after she finds out her daughter has cancer and she goes to the hospital and she ends up screaming at the nurses. That movie, that, that part of the movie just really did not work for me. Her performance was just a little too over the top and didn't fit in with anything else that was really going on and sort of took me out of the moment and just wonder why Brooks as a director didn't try to, you know, rein it in or ask her to do a different version of the same scene. So that way he had options to edit with. Instead, we're left with this really awkward. And and I get that she's supposed to be communicating that she's finally getting in touch with her feelings as far as that she loves her daughter in this way. But it just doesn't work, and I think the performance could have been done differently to sort of communicate that. That's interesting. I actually really liked that scene. Really? Yeah, I thought it was kind of that realization that, you know, it's finally there was some raw emotion Mm -hmm. to me. Everything else seemed really flat, especially once she finds out that she has cancer and, like, she tells her kids. There's no depth there for me, but when, when McLean kind of loses it, that's when I was like, okay, finally feels real now. The mm. only thing I was disappointed with was that there was no rise to that action. So I can see why it seemed over the top because they didn't really build her her pain or her anguish or anything leading up to that moment. It just kind of happened. So it did feel kind of out of place and out of the norm for the pace of the movie, but I actually really liked that part. Mm -hmm. As far as the pacing for me, I thought the first two thirds of the movie kind of hummed along nicely. But then that last third, the movie where we built up this, you know, fairly comedic movie where the laughter comes from the pain of the drama. Whereas in the third act, I kind of felt that the comedy was just completely devoid altogether. And we were left with just the dramatic parts and it sort of removed what made the movie interesting and fun up to that point. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I agree. Like, I know, I know it's tough to make, you know, light of, of someone dying of cancer, but you know, that wasn't the only thing going on. There were, there were things where they tried to mine for laughter as far as, uh, the husband of Deborah Winger's character and, and Shirley MacLaine, uh, them trying to find some sort of connection because they've always struggled to that. I think that could have been mined a bit better for some comedy, but right. it really wasn't. And then there's the reunion between McLean and Nicholson at the very end where you, you get kind of a bit of a giggle, but like it's, it's still so much different than, than what we had been led to expect that you almost feel that a different editor had taken over the film mm-hmm. that they were specifically choosing takes 
or shots where, you know, they're, they're downplaying the comedy and we're left with this very sort of awkward transition into the movie where you don't know what you are really watching. Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it a dramedy? What is it? Yeah. I think that's what a lot of, um, people struggled with was, is it a comedy? Is it a drama? What, what is it? So like the first half is definitely a dramedy if you want, but mm-hmm. the last half is definitely all drama. All <laughs> comedy is taken out of, out of it. I also thought that once she discovered she had cancer, the movie just kind of was like swept under the rug. I was like, okay, let's get this done. Let's move it. Let's move along. <laughs> this is almost over. It yeah. felt really fast to me after that. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can, I can see, I can see how you'd feel about that. I, I, I agree. I think the, the movie has some real pacing issues, uh, has some weird tonal shifts. Uh, as much as I really like Nicholson and McLean's pairing, every time their scenes happen, it seemed like it was taking place in a completely different movie yeah. world than everything else that was going on. Tonally, it was so different than what else we had seen that it almost didn't make sense. And you could very clearly see the hard cuts of this is one type of movie and this is another type of movie. Yeah. I thought their moments together, Nicholson and McLean's, were the best part of the movie and I almost wished that that was just the movie itself because mm-hmm. I thought when they were on screen together it was so much more dynamic there was more going on you felt more for each character but all the other pairings was just like meh it's okay. I definitely think that the movie probably could have shifted its focus where it was more about McLean's character as the lead of uh, a woman coming to grips with her her age, her mortality, mm. the fact that she is alone in the world and and having a strained relationship with her daughter. All that stuff with her daughter still could have been there, but instead of the focus being on the daughter, being about the mother yeah. and her trying to navigate uh, a love life in her, I guess, you know, 50s, late 50s, early 60s. I'm not too sure exactly what age group we're, we're supposed to believe that she is in at this point. Um, and I think it would have been a entirely different sort of movie. But, you know, James L. Brooks has sort of played around with that that character before. That's basically what his entire career is, is about. He, I, would, I would say that he's a very much a, a feminist filmmaker uh, where he is very interested in what the women in the world uh, have to think and feel about things. Mm. Uh, This was his first, you know, real big movie. And the fact that it won best picture uh, really, you know, kind of got his career going and where he could go with it. Um, But I think he could have maybe done a bit better of a movie with similar material. Yeah. Shall we move on to the next one? Sure. Okay, so coming in at number nine was Gandhi from 1982, which was directed by Richard Attenborough. It was the winner of eight Oscars, and it was nominated for three others. So, obviously, from the title, you can tell it's about the major life events of uh, Gandhi. So, as a biopic, and as what you would stereotypically consider a biopic, how did you feel this one fits in with that? This movie clocks in a just over three hours you know so it's biopic length (laughs) it 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 almost felt like you were living an entire lifetime watching this movie we had to do it in two sittings it is very long uh it covers a lot of his life from a young lawyer till the day he dies uh and despite 
all that they cover in the runtime, I feel that so little detail were actually played on some of the more important aspects of his life. Um, to the point where I didn't care about who Gandhi was as a person. Uh, it just seemed like it was one moment of, of action, which led to the next. It was a chess match where we were read the results and not seeing the actual battle that was going on. Mm. Despite the fact that there were numerous scenes of, you know, of violence by, by the British and things like that. And later on the violence between the Hindus and the Muslims, India versus Pakistan and things like that. But, you know, this is, this is part of the reason why bloated biopics exist. When this one best picture is sort of set off the trend of encompassing the entire life of someone. Obviously, this is not the first entire life story, but ever since then, from the mid, the early 80s onward, we get these huge, you know, two, two and a half hour, three hour biopic movies covering the entire lifespan of someone's life, and you just don't care at the end. You're just tired of dealing with this subject matter. You know, finally, it seems like in the last five years, directors have realized that if you condense the life story to a single, you know, year, two years, an event that happens, a, a life turning event that happens to them, you'll actually care far more about the characters and the movie will be a lot more successful because you can glean so much more. You can learn about this person's yeah. life, about how this one defining moment truly impacted them. And this was just completely thrown out to, how much of Gandhi's life can we fit into this movie, which was, you know, a little tedious, a lot tedious, yeah. I would say. No, I have to totally agree. When you're covering uh, such a long period of time, you have to kind of gloss over the details. So while you get a bigger story, you're kind of missing the, the bigger or more important parts. And so you kind of lose the interest because there's nothing really holding your attention or drawing you in. And what I really struggled with um, with this film was that when there was always like a hard moment or if when Gandhi was thrown into prison or you know, arrested, you didn't really see his struggle from there to his next issue. It always seemed like, okay, he's in jail. And then they go like, Oh, a few months later. And all of a sudden he's out of jail and he's moved on to whatever the next obstacle is. So you didn't really feel that tug and pull of being down and out and rising above it was always kind of just like on the cusp always on the edge but never fully realized mm -hmm. yeah you know for an epic you can easily see how attenborough's inspiration was maybe something like lawrence of arabia where there's this grandness to it. There's always a ton of extras in, in every crowd scene. Right. You know, you've got these long takes, you've got these long lens shots going on and things like that. But for some reason, it just made me sort of kind of care even less about a lot of it, where you couldn't see properly some of the things that were going on in the background you know, you have all this grandeur and scope, but at the end of the day, none of it matters if you can't properly see what was going on, you know, whether it's cutting to a close-up or showing the aftermath. You just kind of you don't care. I think I think there was some some sloppy 
editing going on where they would try to do these things with the camera work and think that the camera work itself, the cinematography itself, would save the point that they're trying to get across. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Uh, I I did think that, you know, there were some interesting things going on in it. At the very beginning, Gandhi is a lawyer, and he goes to South Africa where he has a law firm. He's working there. And, you know, South Africa, as we well know from, you know, the Nelson Mandela stories, was kind of a hellhole up until... 25 years ago, maybe even less than that, as far as someone that is not a white person. And it's interesting. He's on, there's this early scene right at the very beginning of the movie. Gandhi is on train. He has a first class ticket and the, the, one of the conductors along with another passenger are irate that uh, a non-white person is up in first class. uh, While the, the, there is a, a black man who's working as a, what would that job be? A, luggage boy. Yeah, luggage boy. I can't remember what the, the, the <laughs> correct term. term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the point of the story is, you know, uh, one of the characters said, I believe it's the, the, pass, the white passenger says that they don't allow black people in first class. And it's sort of, you know... You know, this sort of sentimentality is still so prevalent today. This idea of racism where if you are not white, it doesn't matter what I call you. It's going to be an insult no matter what. The fact is, you know, if you're a South African, you know what black people look like. You're living on a continent filled with them. Yet he calls someone who is very clearly Indian from, you know, that area of Asia black. Um not to say that that's demeaning that he's calling him black, but quite the opposite. The fact that he doesn't even care to have an informed racist yeah. opinion about it. It's the same thing of, you know, recently uh, up in Canada here, Jagmeet Singh won the NDP leadership. You know, he had a heckler calling him a Muslim. He's very clearly a Sikh, the way he has his beard and turban. That makes him a Sikh, the, the cultural hallmarks of being a, a Sikh person. Yet, this heckler decided to try to demean him by calling him a Muslim and saying that Muslims shouldn't be in power and blah, 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 whatever. That doesn't matter. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is Singh shut it down by not saying, don't call me a Muslim. I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Sikh. But by saying, you shouldn't be saying these sort of things about anyone in general. And I think the way they portray Gandhi in the movie, in this scene, he sort of has the same sort of ideal where, you know, he doesn't care that he was called black. He cares that someone thinks that because he is a different color, that makes him lesser. And the fact that there is a black person in the exact same scene and right next to him is sort of speaks to this, that it's not like, no, no, no. Can't you tell the difference between me and him? That's not the point of the scene. The point of the scene is why are you thinking like this? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this, you know, ongoing trend where people that are racist, most likely, do it because they're ignorant and their ignorance shows when, you know, if you care to learn what the difference is between a Hindu and a Muslim and a Sikh and a black person, you'll come to understand what makes them great. And that's sort of, you know, something that these people that feel these sort of things just don't care about that. It's not even something that it comes across their brain, something that they should acknowledge. Yeah. More informed makes you, more intelligent. Yeah, it's been, it's been like it's been proven time and again that 
The thing that is most likely to make someone not a racist is if they travel the world, if they meet people, if they share experiences with them and learn about their struggles and learn about their culture and history and things like that. How can you hate someone that you know something about them and where they come from? And I think, you know, Gandhi really comes to this with the same sort of ideal is how can you come to my country of India and think you know what's better for me and say that I am a lesser person than you when you're the visitor in my country and you know he's working in South Africa how can you say that someone you know you're a white person living in a black continent how can you say that you're better than anyone else how can you how can you even come across that way and I think that's sort of what the heart of the movie is about unfortunately it sort of loses steam after that where it becomes you know it becomes a lot less focused mm. yeah I agree. I think the focus is a big issue with this movie and and where it loses. Um, you know, I think we can't talk about this movie without talking about Ben Kingsley. Yeah. I thought his performance was really good. You know, he evoked what I envisioned God to, to be, kind of calm and thought before he spoke. So all of his scenes seemed like he was taking in what everyone was saying to him. And before he gave any kind of information or critique, he was thinking about it. So I appreciated that um, performance. I think I think he really embodied the role yeah. of, of Gandhi, but at the same time, I feel there wasn't any sort of emotional acting going on by him or anyone else. It was... We're in this moment. How do we deal with this moment? How do we overcome this moment? Okay, now we're on to the next one. And so, you know, whether he would be on a hunger strike and we would get this great moment of him, you know, starving to death or him being beaten or him trying to come up with a counter strike move of how to move next or him talking about the rights of all Indians, things like that, where he inhabited the role so perfectly, but didn't really convey anything else. There was no real layers to the performance, just a really great mimicry. Mm. And while that is absolutely, you know, we should applaud that what he managed to do at the end of the day, you know, this isn't going to go down as like a landmark performance as one that there was so much empathy in. You didn't really care as much, about his struggle because of that. Yeah, I actually found that the most interesting and the most intense uh, scenes were actually ones that didn't involve him at all. So there's two scenes in particular that I'm thinking about where there's um, a protest group going on and and the British come in and kind of start the this massacre and start shooting at unarmed uh, people who are just there to be peaceful and not violent. And that was kind of more provoking and more emotional than any scene that Gandhi had been, that Ben Kingsley had been in at any point. And then also at the salt mine, when they're not allowing anyone to go into it and the the men start lining up and just willingly walk up to the British guards and they are getting abused and hit and tossed aside. And each, each man kind of takes his turn. That was more interesting and more emotional and, pulled more at me than anything else, any other scene that involved Gandhi himself. Mm -hmm. I would say, I I would say, agree with you with the second one, as far as, you know, that first, the massacre scene. And then very early on, there's another scene where a bunch of protesters get beaten up. 
Um, I think those scenes sort of lacked real danger Mm. for the viewer where I watched it and I didn't, you know, I'm seeing people being beaten over the head and shot to death, but I don't feel anything. I don't feel sad. I don't feel worry for them. I think that is an issue with the way that these scenes were shot. Um, that there's some sort of distance between the viewer and the action going on on screen. In fact, I found after the big massacre where over a thousand people were killed, way more chilling was the trial going on where the general was explaining Mm -hmm. to the other judges and higher ups what went on and how coldly he answered their questions. That was far more terrifying in my eyes that someone could be so, you know, not even bloodthirsty, just so devoid devoid (laughs) of anything Mm -hmm. that he can say, you know, he felt it was right. Yeah. They felt that it was right. That if, if people wanted to seek a med- uh, medical help, they could have requested it. And one of the judges says, well, how could a child that was dying request help? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have an answer for that. Or the fact that a tank wasn't able to get into where these protests were. He's, it, he's asked if, it, if the tank was able to go there, would he have opened fire with the tank, not just with the soldiers' rifles? And he said, yes, he would have. That, that was far more terrifying than, than any of the action otherwise in the movie would have been right. for me. Hmm. Um, what else? I think, I think, you know, there was, you know, the movie is inherently about racism and the way we perceive war, the world. Um, I think there's some interesting little nuggets in there. You know, there, there's a line about there's unjust laws, just like there's unjust men when, you know, Gandhi is asked about if a law is put into effect, how can you disobey it is the law. So that means it inherently should be correct because we as a society have to believe that if something is put in place, it's for the greater good. But unfortunately we realize that's not always the case. There's, you know, things that might target certain groups of people or the sentencing might not match the crime, things like that. I think that was a really good thought-provoking moment, and I kind of wish that they would have dwelled on that a little bit longer or expanded upon it further. Um, But I thought that was a real highlight for me. Um, And I think just like today, it's sort of proven that the best weapon against anyone that is being oppressed is the truth in a free press. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's very relevant to what is going on today. Um, that the truth will always win out over everything. You know, sometimes it will take time. Sometimes you'll have hard time arguing with people, especially if they believe things to be fake news. Uh, but this idea that, if you have the truth and can constantly reinforce it, things will eventually go your way. Yeah, I think there's a good part where Candace Bergen, who plays a photographer, mm-hmm. a life photojournalist, um, asks Gandhi if he would use nonviolence against someone like Hitler, and he kind of says he he would use nonviolence and lose, but that's not the main issue. It's showing the injustice you have to show the injustice in order for people to see it and that's how the truth will always come to the forefront and win Mm -hmm. um i think for me the last point i kind of want to make about is this movie starts with the assassination of gandhi and then the funeral 
And I kind of don't like the way they did that. You know, they replay the assassination again at the end, but at the very beginning, it sort of kind of betrays the character where we obviously we go in watching this movie with the perception of who Gandhi is. We know who he is, how he is the leader of nonviolence that got India its independence from, from Great Britain and, and all this sort of great things. Um, but right from the get go, he's being deified and you have this giant funeral for him. And then we're expected to just jump back into believing he is just a, a regular person, a lawyer that still has his worldly possessions and hasn't come to terms with that. And I think that sort of, you know, you, it, kind of changes in your mind the way you're looking at things and i don't think it's articulated as best as it can i think it would have been better if they decided to show the assassination at the beginning that's fine but maybe show the funeral at the Absolutely. end um and maybe a bit about how his legacy impacted those around him because you know the last third of the movie deals with the separation of india and pakistan and you know this muslim versus hindu violence that's occurring and we don't really get any real closure i know you know with religious wars it's never such a cut and dry thing that's going on because these battles have been waged for you know hundreds of thousands of years uh but it just sort of you know was just ended so abruptly that we don't get any sort of real lasting impact of who Gandhi was in the post Gandhi world. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Uh, do you have any last comments about it? No, you want to no, move on? Let's move on. All right. Uh, coming at number eight, we've got out of Africa from 1985 directed by Sidney Pollack. It won seven Oscars. It was nominated for four others. This is a uh, you know one of two Meryl Streep movies from this decade. Three, three Meryl actually, three Meryl yeah. Streep movies from this decade, but it'll be the only one we'll be talking about on this episode. Um, this is kind of a bit of a, a tricky movie to kind of talk about. It's about a love story, but it's also about the people of Kenya and the culture of Kenya. And we kind of get a lot going on in this movie. Did the competing themes really work for you? Were you able to digest everything that was going on? Or do you think that some aspects of it were maybe uh, left to the side for others? I think definitely the latter that some aspects were kind of left off to the side. I think this was a movie that wanted to be about, you know, a woman's love for this country and growing to terms with the culture and seeing, you know, how the people of Africa lived. But I think it was kind of overshadowed by her relationships that she had with the different people and the different men, particularly throughout the film. And I was just kind of left me like, I don't know. It, it seemed with the title of out of Africa, you think you're going to get so much more about Africa. And it was just kind of a romance movie set in Africa. I think, you know, with everything going on in this movie, the one thing that was truly missing was the romance, you know, we're promised this epic romance between Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. And one, it doesn't really start till probably more than halfway through the movie. And, you never really feel the the passion. We're shown the passion, sort of, <laughs> but you don't really feel the love there. Like the, the the film might have been shot with 
the camera on Streep without Redford there and then the camera on Redford without Streep there. And you're just led to believe that, you know, it's edited together. So it has to be true love and it has to be all this passion that's going on. But I really didn't sort of feel that way um, right at the, near the beginning, the first time that uh, Redford and Streep really spend some time together. There's a not so subtle fire burning, uh, superimposed over Robert Redford's face that we're led to believe is the passion that he's suddenly feeling for her, even though we don't really get them together until, you know, an hour later. But it's just sort of funny how overt it really is that they're not trying to hide what type of movie this is. Like, it's almost written like uh, what we would expect uh, a, a trashy fantasy love novel for women should be, but written by a man that yeah. thinks he knows what it's supposed to be. Yeah. I don't know what this movie was or wanted to be or what its <laughs> purpose served. And honestly, I'm really shocked that it won seven Oscars. It's, it is definitely surprising, especially considering Sidney Pollack is a really good director. You know, he also did Tootsie, which is a, is a very funny and heartfelt, sentimental movie. But he does this, and and I would I would sort of compare it to Terms of Endearment, where there is this sort of grandeur to it. Uh, but unlike Terms of Endearment, no, sorry, uh, not Terms of Endearment, Gandhi. Uh, but unlike Gandhi, I think there is some real talent going on with the cinematography. You know, I looked on Letterboxd and all the reviews about the movie is, wow, this movie is terrible. But, you know, those cinematography shots are fantastic, <laughs> which the way that Pollock shoots the African savanna and the Maasai area of Kenya is absolutely stunning. And the fact that it seems like he tried to include a shot every single animal that is in Kenya, you know, in one scene you have lions, then you have elephants, then you have hippos, then you have giraffes, then you have monkeys, then you have birds and so and so. It seems like every single animal is present in this movie. And it was almost like, what can we do to make this movie more African feeling to the point where it got a little silly at times, but I still appreciate it. The fact that they are able to get this on film because it sort of really helped to set the the mood of what was going on, the landscape of everything that was going on. Uh, and I think the cinematography was easily the best thing, in my opinion, of this movie. Yeah, I thought it was good. But I also, I did think it was well cast. And I actually appreciated the moments where Redford and Street were together because I actually did buy the romance. Did you? I did buy it. Okay, that's good. I didn't. <laughs> um, you know, we were just talking about Gandhi and the British influence over India. And I think these two movies go together very well because a big part of this movie is sort of the colonial influence over Africa as a whole, not just Kenya, but as a whole, because we, that really is true. Whether it's, whether it's England or Portugal or Spain or the Netherlands or France, almost all of Africa has been ruled by another country, white country at some point. So it's, sort of been forced into their culture that there is this also this white aspect to it. And it's, it's sort of interesting. The movie kind of starts out with a little bit too much of look at all of this, the white people sharing the world of Kenya and they're bringing their world to enrich the lives of the people there. And it kind of got a little annoying at times where I thought it was going to be a bit of a white savior movie, mm -hmm. which 
you know, this, obviously we're sick of it now, but at the time that was not so, it was more of a commonplace thing. Um, but then I think by the time we're, we're really introduced to Robert Redford's character, we kind of get the other side of the perspective that they sort of, we are led halfway through the movie led to believe that white colonialism was a good thing for Africa and then there's talk about Meryl Streep's character opening up a school so she can teach these kids to read uh, and make them smart. And, and Redford's character rightly kind of, you know, snaps back just because they can't read English does not make them does not mean that they're not smart or that they don't have their own sort of intelligence and sort of throughout the rest of the movie. It's sort of that battle of going back and forth of how do you respect a culture without imposing your own views on it? Are there ways to bring your own background and help better them, but at the same time respecting them as well? And I think there's a, a nice, interesting battle going on between that where we don't want to play white savior to them. We want to integrate ourselves, but at the same time, I think at the end of the day, there needs to be some respectfulness to it. I think at the very end of the film, they sort of betray that a little bit where, you know, you have this little black boy that so desperately wants to leave Africa and go back to uh, Denmark with Meryl Streep's character. But for the most part, I think they do a really good job of actually challenging the audience of our perception of colonial influence over the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else we got here? Um, I think there's a scene where the lion is attacking the campsite. Mm-hmm. That really got my heartbeat racing where it kind of was, it was actually terrifying for me where the lion <laughs> looks scary and the reaction on Streep's face was scary. I was yeah, reading yeah. the trivia of the movie and uh, apparently all the lions were supposed to have uh, a chain around one of their legs so that way they could be controlled off screen. Um, But apparently that was let go and the lions were getting a lot closer to the actors and the crew than thought be. So that's Meryl Streep's genuine fear. And I think that really shows through in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, Streep as always is good. (laughs) Like you just have to say Meryl Streep and you know, it's going to be a good performance. So what she conveys through fear when I think there's two points where actually a lion attacks and she's the first one, she's definitely more fearful. And then the second one is a little bit later on. And so she has more control and a little bit more fearless, but yeah, I think she she does a really good job. Mm -hmm. Uh, One funny thing I noticed was the, the home that Streep has, uh, you could tell by how uh, how satisfied she was by how full the gun rack was. Yeah. yeah. So she first moves in with her with her husband, um, and the gun rack is nice and full, and because she goes hunting as well, uh, but that means that there's people there, and it's a loving home. And then he is gone, and all but one gun remains, which is Streep's. And then later, when she starts the romance up with Redford, the gun rack gets filled up again. And you could sort, you could sort of feel that that's her oh, being fulfilled. The love meter. <laughs> so that was kind of a, a funny thing. Yeah. Um, funny. 
the one thing I have to say about, you know, we were talking about how beautiful this film was shot. The one thing that kind of disappointed me was the rear projection sort of ruined it. There's a couple scenes, one in particular where they're uh, Redford and Streep are flying a plane um, and all of a sudden, you know, you have the shots of the plane flying over the savannah. It's beautiful. And then it cuts up to the close-ups of the actors' yeah. faces. And you can tell it's a screen showing so the clouds obvious. behind so them. Obvious. And it just completely takes you out of the moment. Like, you, you can't not roll your eyes at that sort of moment. And it's kind of annoying. And also, the whole point of that airplane sequence is to kind of just show the emergence of new technology of that era. You know, they get introduced to cars and that's the new wonder. And then they show the airplane and it's what, like a 10, 15 minute sequence of them just Just flying. Nothing's happening. Nothing. So I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I was distracted by that for sure. I thought it was super obvious and it was weird and I didn't appreciate that. It didn't really lead to anything. No, it was yeah. Other than that later on, Redford's character dies in an airplane cl- crash, yeah. but they didn't need a 15-minute sequence of them romantically flying <laughs> yeah. We're, to establish that. one moment, that. Streep reaches back behind her to grab <laughs> Redford's hand, and I'm like, okay. It was a little ridiculous since they're so far apart, and she struggled, <laughs> and they like barely touch fingertips, and it's supposed it to be this tender so moment where they're yeah. holding hands. It did not work. <laughs> All right, uh, I guess moving on. Okay, so coming in at number seven is Chariots of Fire from 1981, directed by Hugh Hudson. It was the winner of four Oscars and was nominated for three others. So this is uh, the story of two um, athletes, young runners, who are training for the 1924 Paris Olympics, and they're kind of struggling to show their worth to both sides of their story. How, how did you find, I found that, I mean, when you think of Chariots of Fire, you immediately think of that running scene on the beach with the music and the score, and that's kind of what embodies the movie when you think of it. Did you think that the movie itself held up to the great love of the theme, like the anthem of the movie? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface all this by saying, me especially is probably going to come out very hard on this. And you're going to wonder why this is in seventh place above the other movies. Um, and I'm probably going to have a hard time communicating what I like about this movie because what I do like outweighs what I don't like. Unfortunately, most of the movie is what I don't like <laughs> specifically the score. I never cared for the score. I think Part of that has to do with the fact that it has been replayed ad nauseum. That anytime there's supposed to be an epic moment of someone running in slow motion, that's the music they use. <laughs> yeah. And we're sort of ruined for that. And so it comes right at the very beginning. And you've got all of these guys running so majestically through the beach with the sand going between their toes and the waves lightly crashing against their ankles. And you just don't care. <laughs> Like, I just had to roll my eyes about how ridiculous it all is. It is. And then you realize, you think that this is the start of the movie, and then you realize, oh, okay, yeah, this happens a little bit later. But all the actors are together. And it took me probably about half an hour, 40 minutes to realize that all the men in this scene 
don't know each other from the beginning, that they don't get introduced yeah. to each other till much later much on. Much confusing. That you have stories going on in England and Scotland and in different places, and you're <laughs> just like, wait, I, I thought, where's this guy again? I thought they knew each other. I thought they were, t no, they're not. They're just rivals from a different country. Okay. And so, like, you're trying to process all this information of who is who. And then you realize, what does it matter? I don't care about any of this. It's about uh, the struggle of white men trying to race in the Olympics, <laughs> yeah. which is the least relatable thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, they each have their backstory and, and why they want to win so bad and why they're struggling to prove their worth. And they're also struggling to beat each other. And it's just a lot of baloney you're like okay yeah why am i supposed to be interested in this it's it, like why do i want you to win i i didn't really know much about this movie other than knowing the iconic running on the beach in slow motion theme and knowing that it was about racing in the olympics but about halfway through i'm like oh I guess this movie is about how a Christian guy doesn't want to run on Sundays and how a Jewish guy is facing discrimination because he's Jewish in a waspy country and waspy sports. And then I read the IMDb description and it's a Jewish man struggles against his faith. Well, a Christian man also struggles his own faith. I'm just like, oh, that's the entire point of the movie? Yeah. Where it literally boils down to one guy doesn't want to run on Sundays and another guy has to deal with backhanded comments because he's Jewish. Okay, like it, it just sort of reinforces the fact that you just can't relate to these guys' struggles and that you just don't care ultimately of what's going on. Yeah, it's kind of bloated, the film in general. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of talk and it's just it leads not to a lot of action, sadly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I think, you know, the movie kind of started off. I've been uh, a harsh critic of a lot of the early best picture winners for their use of casual racism. Uh, and right away, this movie sort of, you know, has a few, you know, little barbs towards Jewish people. And I'm just like, great, another movie with casual racism that I'm going to have to sit through where there's no real point to this being included. But I think, you know, this is the sort of thing that that ultimately won me over for this movie not being completely terrible was the fact that the casual racism was there. Because, you know, when we expect to watch a movie or, or anything of someone dealing with discrimination. We usually expect it to be over and ridiculous and easily to be able to point out, be like, why are you doing that? But this is so, you know, subtle. It's saying things behind his back, uh, or, you know, you know, making comments to his face that on, on the level, you know, don't really mean much, but you know, when you hear them repeatedly, you understand that they come from a place of, of hatred, um, like there, there's this one comment that kind of really stuck out to me where uh, the Jewish character was said afterwards, he's like, oh, I guess he's not going to be joining the choir mm -hmm. or something like that. Or like on the surface, how innocent or stupid of a comment is it? But, you know, on the subtext of that is he's not good enough to be in the same room as these good Christian men. So 
it's sort of this sort of ingrained belief that he is lesser than them. And it's probably not the first time in his life that he's had to deal with comments like that, where it's all these sort of like snide little comments where, you know, one by one, they don't mean much, but death by a thousand cuts eventually gets to you and you expect someone to lash out at that point. And I think the fact that the racism was so casual, the anti-Semitism mm-hmm. was so casual throughout the whole movie that it wasn't, it was at the beginning, you know, it was comment here, comment there. It was just sort of subtext throughout the whole movie. I really appreciated that where I think if I had sort of wanted to assign a numerical rating right after I watched the movie, I would be like, this movie is terrible. It's garbage too. But the fact that I waited a few days and was able to kind of sleep on it and the portrayal between uh, the actor and the way he kind of dealt with it, I think that sort of made me appreciate it more. And that was really the biggest thing that I, I sort of came away with really liking. Yeah. I think one of the, the biggest moments of anti-Semitism is when um, Ian Holm, who plays the coach of the Jewish runner, whose name I've forgotten now, Ab- Abraham, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, he's not allowed on the premises for the run, for his for his for the big race. For the big race, yeah. because he's Jewish and he's not allowed to to come and view and be there for him. So he's kind of sitting in his room, not inside the Olympic Village, and has to listen to it on the radio. And you kind of feel for him, and you get his frustration. And I thought he he had a really good performance, actually, in home was probably the best one for me in that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think he was, I think he was really good. Um, the one, I think one of the other things I found about this was it was very lazy filmmaking as the camera didn't do anything interesting. You know, the only time we are introduced to some sort of an interesting shot is about probably two thirds of the way through the movie where there's, where the runners are replaying the race in their head of why he lost and you get these interesting angles. They finally show the race from different angles. And up until then, everything has been so straightforward and boring that it just sort of kind of sticks out as why are they finally doing it at this point? But also, like, why why are why are they inserting this two-thirds of the way through the movie? When you're when you're doing a movie, you're supposed to be able to uh, build upon things. And so you can't introduce it at such a late point because then it just sort of sticks out as not being true to the world where you need to sort of introduce these sort of stylistic choices early on. And it really doesn't. So it's kind of frustrating that there's no interesting stylistic choices by the director, by the cinematographer, by the editor until two thirds of the movie. And at that point, it just really, you know, kind of sticks out in a poor way. Yeah. It's very straightforward. All the, running scenes which are supposed to be the big moments of the film you know shot following from the front the runners as they run past you you get a glimpse of the side it's it's all like left to right panning and there's slow motion involved which is probably the only flare that they decide to use and and uh and then of course at the end where it gets the end of the race where time is back to its natural pace and the winner crosses the finish line and everyone's catching their breath and it's all chaotic. So it's just, yeah, it kind of makes for a boring race sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like the whole big Olympic race, it was so short. It absolutely kills what little buzz you have for these characters 
four Abrahams or Abrams, I think his name, Abrams is his name, um, where it's just like, I get it's, I, I guess, a 100-meter dash or something like that, but they basically show it in real time. If you've ever seen a 100-meter dash at the Olympics, it's over in 11 seconds. That's really quick. And and that's all they show. You know, there's no real build-up. You know, we've got this, oh, yeah, he's on the starter block. Oh, he's got the coach away from it. And then starter gun goes off, and then 10 seconds later it's over. And it's like, oh, okay, we just spent two hours <laughs> building up to this. Yeah. Yeah, that was disappointing because that's the whole point of the movie is them training and them struggling to get there and wanting to ra- run and having to figure out if they can run on a Sunday and blah, blah, blah. And then they finally get to this moment and it's over and it's done and it's okay. Mm -hmm. One of the things I kind of wish that they touched more upon is this idea that uh, the Olympics are supposed to be an amateur event. The reason why the Olympics were created as an amateur event was so that way only rich people can do that because only rich people can afford to uh, pay for training and not have to work for their sports. Uh, and that way they can kind of focus on their craft that way. It was a kind of, the Olympics were created specifically to not include poor people. Uh, and they kind of touch about that when the amateur status, uh, is, is kind of critiqued about someone who hires an outside coach and what that sort of means to his eligibility. And I kind of wish they would have explored that a little bit further as what that means as far as classes, mm-hmm. but it really isn't, you know, most of the, the subject matter has to deal with, um, the idea of having the wrong God versus not, uh, being true to your God, the right God. So that's kind of the way they kind of really portray the, the struggles. And that seems to be what the main focus of this movie is about, which is an interesting concept. I think they just didn't do it in a good enough way. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, is this movie worthy of best picture? Absolutely not. <laughs> like, you know, you can you can see why Gandhi won. You know, even even out of Africa, I guess I can kind of see it. In terms of endearment, I don't know how that won. And in Chariots of Fire, I also don't understand why this movie won Best Picture. Uh, like, are you satisfied that one, or do you wish they went to anything else? Literally anything else? Um, I don't hate it as much as as you do, <laughs> and I think I can see a little bit more merit behind it. Whereas I thought it was weird that Out of Africa won, and in terms of endearment, where I would agree. Um. It was an okay film. It was kind of a bizarre way to show the story. A little lackluster, but I guess I understand why everyone loves it so much. (laughs) Okay. Uh, All right. Now, last film of this episode. Coming out at number six, we've got Platoon from 1986. It was directed by Oliver Stone. It won four Oscars. It was nominated for four others. Now, this movie tackles the Vietnam War in a way that we had not really seen previously. It is very graphic and very intense. Um, And it also kind of reiterates the supposed machoism of war. Now, do the uncomfortable horrors that are experienced in the jungle make you... Uh, feel for the characters or does it sort of put you off from the movie altogether? I think it makes you feel for the characters. While this wasn't one of my favorites of this, of the 10 that we, for this decade, I think I definitely appreciated 
the uh, imagery that was used and visuals that you saw through the, the scenes of violence and just the pain and anguish that each character or each actor portrayed on their face and the emotions that ran through them and their highs and lows, I think you could really feel for them and understand why it is such a, I don't think it glamorized war as much as more recent and current films do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, Stone wrote this movie after he personally signed up to uh, fight in the Vietnam war Stone came from a very affluent family and he was realizing that the only people that were being drafted to fight were poor people and black people. And so he decided he wanted to experience what it would be like. And so he left all the comforts of his home to join people that are completely different than him. Uh, And of course he survived and wrote this movie about it. And I think because of that, his view on class struggles are not exactly subtle in this movie it sort of is a nice to, to sort of see these ideas explored, but at the same time, it's uh, done as subtle as a baseball bat whacking you over the <laughs> head. And so it's not really, I think it could have been done better. Well, at the same time, I think the idea, the fact that these ideas are presented in and of themselves uh, is a good thing for this movie. But because stone actually experienced what it was like to be in vietnam he brought a real authenticity to making this movie you know like i said the uncomfortable horrors of the jungle that are experienced they're very palpable you you feel the bugs you feel the rain you feel the heat you feel all these things just by watching this movie yeah. uh, and it makes you as a viewer uncomfortable to experience it and i think that is something that no other director could have brought to the table that Stone brought. Yeah, I think it was really well done. Um, you know, some of the parts are a little silly, like the military cliche tough guy talk got a little laughable, where, yeah. you know, half the, basically all of the supported characters only talked in one-liners. Yeah. Which I think has been a constant criticism of Stone's dialogue writing throughout his years, is that... It doesn't sound very natural. He is not a very naturalistic screenwriter. Um, That's not what he excels at. And sometimes it's a benefit. Sometimes it's a bit of a hindrance. And I think this time is a bit of a a bit of a hindrance. Um, What did you think about the the sort of the lead performances? Um, I thought the performances were really well done. There, there, I want to talk about something that I really hated, which was Charlie Sheen's voiceover. <laughs> yeah. I thought it added nothing to the story or to the movie because anything that he said was either shown in the previous scene or was played out immediately after he said it in the voiceover. And I didn't think it added anything to it. And it was something that I found distracting and extremely annoying. Putting that aside, though, I thought that each of them may, had great performances and brought something unique to each character. And I really believed that Charlie Sheen, uh, you know, was this, he came, he gave up everything. He was green as anything. And with each passing day and each passing struggle, more and more was added to his shoulders weight wise and just coming to terms with what he got himself into and what so many other people don't have the luxury of getting themselves into. They're just thrust upon it. Mm -hmm. So, I really appreciated that. 
I think, you know, it's fascinating. I'm glad you brought up the, the voiceover by Charlie Sheen. Uh, earlier, we heard from Cole talking about one of his favorite movies being Apocalypse Now. And this is very clearly Stone's homage to Apocalypse Now to the point where Charlie Sheen was cast because his father, Martin Sheen, played the lead in Apocalypse Now. Uh, and it's about sort of his experience, see the war being seen through his eyes and he also does a narration. So Stone is literally copying Coppola uh, by having someone that looks exactly like his lead by casting his son to play sort of an identical role of being the audience's surrogate into this war. So that's sort of a, a fascinating thing where if you watch it almost as a quasi-reinterpretation of Apocalypse right. Now, um, it sort of matches up pretty nicely. Um, I think this movie where it succeeds the most is the conflicts between the two troop leaders played by Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe. The two of them are, are polar opposites in the way of their leadership. And I think really the, the sort of essay of the movie was uh, this idea of the portrayal of the U S army. You know, you have uh, Berenger's Barnes character uh, who is seen as this uh, real gung-ho fighter side of the U.S. military. And then you've got Willem Dafoe's Elias, who is more the the mediator who wants to fix things and make things better. And they sort of, you know, are two sides of the same coin, of the coin being the U.S. military and how they view themselves in the world. And also, uh, I know Stone has talked about it, sort of the, the devil and angel on Charlie Sheen's shoulders right. of how he views himself. Does he want to be a killer or does he want to be a savior? How, how is he going to uh, transform his life to be involved in this war? Hmm. I actually didn't have enough of a difference between those two characters. Between Berenger and Defoe? Yeah. I thought that I understood that they were different and they, they approach things at different angles. But there were times where we're supposed to believe that Defoe is more of the level-headed, more of the let's, you know, diffuse the situation guy. But he still stood by while Barnes did stuff and he he watched things happen and he didn't really try to stop them in the moment. He was just more outraged afterwards and that kind of bugged me. They kind of melded into the same character to me at certain points and I couldn't really distinguish them enough to root for either side. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from. I think also they kind of meant to show what the two extremes were, but then also kind of showing where they sort of meet in the middle, mm-hmm. where you can very easily go one way or the other, because on on the other side of that is, is Behringer's performance, where there will be see, there were scenes where... Uh, he was very level-headed and talking with his troop about how he had a role to play and that if it wasn't going to be him, you know, they would be the ones that would have to die. And so, you know, you get kind of a little bit of levity brought into the situation as explaining why he is that way. And then, you know, you take both of those characters to the extremes and you get very different sort of personas. But I, I do agree that sometimes it gets a little confusing. And specifically the moment you're talking about where it's this massacre on this innocent village and Defoe's character kind of just lets it happen yeah. for the most part until the very end when he realizes that he can gain control of the situation because the situation has already been put under control. Right. So it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, 
one, like, you know, I, Berenger, I thought was pretty fantastic. You know, there's this moment at the end of the movie where he realizes that he needs to kill Defoe's character. Otherwise he's going to be court-martialed and most likely sentenced to death himself. And the way he stomps through the jungle while all this fighting is going on, you can just tell that there's just absolute ice in his veins and he does not care. And you you can feel this sort of real danger around him where you don't know what his fate is going to be, but you also understand what his motivation is and there's bullets flying around and you know that there's enemies hiding in the, the trees and you don't know when they're going to pop out. I think that brought a real interesting dynamic and like kind of makes your heart beat out of your chest watching him sort of literally stomp through the jungle in a very methodical way that you can really appreciate what he brought to the table. Yeah, it was almost like he blocked out everything else that was going on around him to get to Defoe and like get done what his job, his task at hand was for that moment. And it was just like, well, there's all this war and violence and chaos going around him, but he's just like some cat through the jungle, making it through all these trees and these obstacles and streams. And it's just very focused and yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the best things that Stone did was his use of, uh, of close-ups. They really kind of showed great emotion on the actors' faces and the pain that they were feeling. And it, and it brought this sort of immediacy to everything that was going on where you can watch the action and then get a super close-up and see what is happening behind these characters' eyes and what they're thinking about. And I think that's, you know, a mix of some really fantastic acting, but also uh, the director having faith that he would be able to capture what he needs to do by implementing this technique. Because otherwise, you know, it could have just been, you know, bland faces or someone, you know, being too sad or too angry, but it wasn't. And the fact that, Stone was able to trust his actors to give him what he needs to help tell their story was really a positive thing for me and helped showed why Stone is considered such a great filmmaker when he's on his A game. And I would say, you know, a good chunk of this movie, he's on his A game, but there are some moments that don't work quite as well that maybe aren't aging as well uh, for a movie over 30 years old. But for the most part, I think it shows why Stone is a really good director. I wish he had left it at those close-ups to convey the emotion because I mm. thought that the score was so overused in this movie. There's that, like, I don't know what instruments, like violin playing music in the background that's just used in almost every, like, serious moment that's supposed to lead you into feeling a certain way. And I just felt it was just overused. And, okay, I get it. It's a sad moment. Okay, I get it. It's a dire situation. Okay, I get it. Like, if you just left it through the action and to the actors and to the emotions on the faces, I would have felt more connected rather than led to believe a certain or to feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, despite the fact that we're, we're mostly only talking about the three main actors in this, um, it really is an ensemble movie. You even have Johnny Depp popping up in a yeah, very small part where he was really young. Uh, Forrest Whitaker, also really young in this movie. Um, so it's kind of cool to see that. But there's also like a really good supporting cast. Was there any people that really stuck out for you? Yeah, actually, there's a moment at the end of the film 
I can't remember the character's name, but he's played by John C. McGinley. And he's, uh, he believes that after all this, this massacre that he's finally, he's given his time. He's about to leave. He, he feels that, you know, he knows that he's coming to the end of his term and is ready to go home and is just dying to go home. And because of all the stuff that has happened and, and the men that they've lost, his general comes in and pats him on the back and says, okay, suit up. You're going back out there. And just the look on his face from like, I survived all of this. This is great. I'm going home finally and being told it's not over. You have to go. It's just, everything's just drained from his face and you just feel so much just anguish for this guy. And you just feel terrible. And I think he, he played that so well. That scene is my favorite scene in that whole movie. I had to <laughs> wait the entire movie just to get that one scene where I felt so emotionally connected to the film. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's very rare that there is a single moment, even a look that is so defining that I, I would probably say that was probably one of the best moments of this entire decade of films uh, and the ability that, John C. McGinley is able to translate exactly what he's feeling. You know, he's most known for being in Scrubs, of being this, you know, jackass, wisecracking sort of guy with a bit of a heart of gold secretly. He's good in that. He's great in that. But I think if any actor is able to convey the emotion that he did in that one scene you're you know you're up there greatest actors of all time like it, it was it was stunning like you don't expect john c mcginley the guy dr cox from scrubs to be able to do bring that kind of moment to a movie it brought the movie up for me for sure yeah like it made it for me 100 mm-hmm. percent um so yeah that's uh this number's 10 through 6 uh, in the second part of this episode, we are going through five through one, and we're also going to share our favorite awards for, for actors and best picture uh, and, and, and all that sort of great stuff. I just want to give a shout out that the music from this episode is by Brooklyn Dorn. She's a Toronto-based singer and songwriter. For more information, you can check out brooklyndorn.com. Make sure you also check out liveinlimbo.com, where the show notes are going to be. We're going to have links uh, for all of these movies, uh, let you know about that, where you can buy Brooklyn's music or see her uh special thanks again to cole for coming on and sharing his three favorite movies and and thanks to stephanie for coming on and joining me for this i look forward to talking about uh the five best it's always funny when we do when i do these episodes the first five is always like all right i got things i gotta complain about gotta get them off the chest and then the second five is all about this is why this is the best thing ever and and i definitely think it's going to be like that too where the top five that we have you know there's going to be we've got some minor quibbles probably with some in like the five four area but after that there's some really great movies i'm excited to talk about very excited to talk about some in particular yeah okay uh but yeah so make sure you uh you tune into that you can follow me on twitter at dgapa you can also follow the show at contrazoom pod on twitter uh like i said check it live limbo.com for the show notes uh and thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it paper wings or are they painted gold i will burn you up dear